Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering us together this evening. We thank you for speaking to us through your word. We pray that it would be effectual in our lives, accomplishing everything that you have set out for it to accomplish. We pray that it would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We pray that we would hear with ears that you have given us to hear and that we would believe with hearts that you have given us to believe and that we would have hands and feet that are eager and willing to do your will. We pray that as we consider the cross of Christ, as we consider what it took to reconcile us to you, that we would never cease to marvel at your amazing grace and that it would shape all that we do and think and say. In Jesus' name, washed in his blood, clothed in his robe of righteousness and indwelt by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, please be seated and turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the Gospel of Luke chapter 23. And before we get too far, I just want to say that I am indebted to Dr. Hywell Jones for a series that he did at the seminary a few years ago about sayings from the cross. Um, and his thinking and teaching on this has shaped my own thoughts and my reflections. There are a couple points in which I'll quote him directly, but his, the depth and the profundity with which he addressed these will I will never be the same again. <laughs> I would encourage you if you get the opportunity to go and listen to them. They're available on uh, the seminary site. But we're going to look at one of the seven sayings that Jesus said from the cross this evening. We'll look at his promise that he said, today you will be with me in paradise. But let's hear now this account uh, from Luke's gospel of the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 26, and we'll read down uh, through 43. This is the very uh, word of God. It says, as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So far the reading of God's holy word. You know, we may want to ask at the very beginning, what is so good about Good Friday or why it is even called Good Friday? It's a day of darkness, of sadness, of suffering, of the death of Jesus. Some traditions call it Sorrowful Friday. Some think it started as actually calling it God's Friday. Regardless, we recognize it as the centerpiece of God's plan to rescue, to redeem, to renew, to reconcile, and to restore his people. The cross is really the decisive turning point in redemptive history, and it's the turning point in human history. That a promise was made in the garden. After Adam and Eve fell into sin, after Adam plunged all of humanity into sinfulness and separation from God, an enmity towards God, a promise was made that a seed would come. A seed from the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent, that he would conquer our enemies, that he would conquer sin, that he would conquer Satan, that he would conquer death. And the scripture said over and over that it was going to have to be through suffering. It was going to have to be the way of the cross, the way of suffering that this would happen. So Good Friday is a remembrance of the centerpiece of our salvation. That we have a savior, a substitute who came and paid the penalty for us. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus died as a condemned criminal on our behalf, enduring the wrath of God for us. Observing the whole last week of Jesus' life, one may get the impression, the mistaken impression, that Jesus was merely a victim. He was dragged before Pontius Pilate. He was thrown in prison. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was spat upon. He had a sham trial. There were false witnesses, false accusations. He was condemned. He was lit, whipped. He was led out to be crucified. He was, had a thorn of... Um, a crown of thorns crushed into his head and nails driven into his hands and feet. But Highwell Jones reminds us that Jesus died on a cross, but not because of the cross. Rather, he laid down his own life for his sheep. He's in control of the entire situation. What looks like he's being A helpless victim is actually him in control of the situation. And he's the one who willingly went. He's the one who gave up his life for his people. He died on the cross, but not because of the cross. Jesus was not a helpless, helpless, hopeless victim, but he was a purposeful, intentional, loving, merciful, and gracious Savior a substitute for the hapless, the hopeless, and the helpless sinners like you and I. His sayings from the cross even manifest his control and his purpose and intentionality even in the last hours of his life. There are seven sayings that are recorded by Jesus from the cross. He says, Woman, behold your son and behold your mother, speaking to Mary and to John. He's kind of orchestrating the relationships and the fellowship that's going to go on after he dies. He cries out, I thirst. He says, it is finished, recognizing that everything that he came to do, his mission is being accomplished right then, that it is over. It's the fulfillment of everything promised, everything prophesied about him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Imagine that. Hanging on a cross. The awareness of mind, the awareness, the presence of mind and mission and the control that he has. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do while he is at that very moment providing the basis for that forgiveness is his own death, his own sacrificial death on behalf of his people. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he endures the wrath and the condemnation, the hell that should have been poured out onto us, he takes upon himself. He says, today you will be with me in paradise, which is the saying that we want to look at today. He's making a promise. He's making an oath. And then his last saying, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, what Highwell Jones is saying is that he didn't die on a cross, or sorry, he died on a cross, but not because of the cross. He gave up his spirit when he was ready, when everything that he came to accomplish had been accomplished then. He laid down his life. He's the one who's in control. The crowds surrounding the crucifixion are interesting, aren't they? They're there for a variety of reasons. Some are there probably out of curiosity, some out of compassion, some out of anger, some out of revenge. We see one group that is of sympathetic mourners, the daughters of Jerusalem who are weeping for Jesus and Jesus tells them not to weep for him. There's a group of hostile mockers. The Jewish rulers says that they scoffed and mocked. They were saying he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. This is really not what Jesus came to do, is it? Was to save himself. He did come to save others. That's the very reason why he's hanging on the cross right now while they're mocking him is because he's paying the penalty and he is saving all of those who are his. The Romans' guards also mocked and mistreated him. They cast lots and they offered him bitter drink. That should be seen as a desire to prolong his life and his suffering because he's dying of thirst on a cross and so they give him something bitter. This is hard-heartedness and wanting to see him suffer even more. All of these things are actually the fulfillment of Scripture. Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 All of these things are happening exactly as God said they would, exactly as Jesus is bringing them about in time as well. In addition to the sympathetic mourners and the hostile mockers, there were also hopeful believers. Mary and John. Jesus' mom and Jesus' one of his best friends standing there, having to watch the horror of this, being probably a bit disillusioned as we find out until... Things changed three days later. And then there are two criminals hanging on either side of them. Most likely there were many people that were crucified that day, but Luke is focusing in on these three. And it's this that we want to spend the rest of the time thinking about. Our passage tonight is different from all of the other sayings on the cross because this one is a conversation. All the others were spontaneous expressions that Jesus had said, I thirst, Father, forgive them, praying to uh, his Father. But this is another conversation with human beings. Others had spoken to him or about him, but he didn't reply. Jesus had said nothing to his mockers, to his scoffers from the cross, 
Like scripture said, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. When he was reviled, he reviled not against them. He did not avenge himself. He was entrusting himself to the Father, the one who judges justly. And this story, this account with the criminals is only recorded in Luke. And it's interesting because Luke has a concern for the outsiders or the outcasts. And here's a criminal about ready to receive salvation. Luke's gospel has also consistently compared and contrasted two fundamentally different responses to the person and work of Jesus. All of them had heard the same words. They'd heard the same sermons, the same teachings. They'd witnessed the same miracles. They'd seen the same signs. They'd interacted with the same person, Jesus. But one group rejected him and hated him, and another one responded to him in faith and love. The story of the the parables of the two sons indicate this. When it gives a story of the two men that went up to the temple. One saying, thank God I'm not like this guy. And the other one saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Two groups of people. The ones who are shaking their fists saying, we will not have this man rule over us. And the other ones who cry out, have mercy on us, Jesus. Son of David, son of God. And so don't forget as we move on, who it is that's hanging on the cross. This is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the one through whom everything that exists was created, now in the flesh, now hanging on a Roman cross outside of center city Jerusalem, mocked, beaten, betrayed, stripped, suffocating, and thirsty. And he has this conversation. And so we just want to look at this conversation as it unfolds. In verse 39, criminal one, we don't have his name, so we'll call him criminal one. Criminal one says to Jesus something. He said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. If it wasn't so tragic, there'd be something somewhat comical about this. Imagine hanging there. You must have massive anger issues if your last gasping breath is going to be to mock or to rail on somebody else. His last words are just pouring out venom and hatred and mockery about someone else. This is revealing a hard heart. This is revealing a stone-cold heart that doesn't love God and doesn't love his neighbor. The word that's actually used for railed can be rightly translated as blasphemed. He blasphemed. That's his dying breath. His dying utterance is to rail against God. In the flesh, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He expresses total sarcasm and total total sacrilege. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. In other words, you're not the Christ. It's showing a bitter heart. It's showing hatred to the core. The irony, of course, is that Jesus, who is God, is the one who is worthy of all praise and all adoration and the only one who can truly be blasphemed. And he is on the cross in part because he was accused of blasphemy. (laughs) And in that moment, beloved, he's enduring the punishment for our failures to honor the Lord as we should, 
to hallow his name as we should, to use his name in vain in any way. At that very moment, he's enduring our punishment for that. So this first criminal is railing against Jesus, blaspheming him. So the second conversation is criminal two says something to criminal one. I think I would just want to die and go into the great beyond, right? And here, let's have a theological argument while we're hanging on the cross. The other criminal rebuked him. (laughs) He says, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. In other words, why are you mocking him? You're facing the same judgment. We're feet or yards apart hanging here, and you're mocking him? Don't you realize that you're under the same condemnation? You are crazy. You are foolish. That is nuts. He says, don't you fear God? Beloved, what's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. One of these men is showing himself a fool, and the other one is showing himself to be wise. And the scripture points out the difference between these ways, don't they? The way of folly ends in condemnation and death. The way of wisdom leads to life and peace and shalom. And so he's saying, don't you fear God? Criminal 2 recognizes the justice in his case. We are guilty. We deserve what's happening to us. We are receiving the due rewards for our deeds. We're reaping what we sowed. We violated the law, Roman law and the law of God. The wages of sin is death and these guys are dying. And there's a certain rightness about that, a justice about that. He says we are rightly condemned. Justice is being done in our case. This is what we deserve. But criminal two recognizes the travity of justice in Jesus' case. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. He's declaring Jesus to be innocent. In Luke's gospel account, this is the sixth of seven times that someone declares Jesus innocent. Pilate had done it. Herod had done it twice. Luke, the narrator, does it twice. This criminal is now doing it. And then in just a few verses, a Roman centurion will do it. Seven times. It's recognized and confessed that Jesus is innocent, that he has done nothing wrong, that this is a travesty of justice. Sometimes when we talk about the fear of the Lord, it's a difficult thing to comprehend And I would say, in short, it means to see the reality of our condition and the need for our Savior. To fear the Lord means to recognize that he is other, that he is the creator and that we are the creation, that he is holy and that we are not. Hywell Jones, when saying, talking about this passage, said, isn't it interesting that the world didn't end right at the moment that they crucified his son? He is a holy God. 
we should have a healthy fear of God and his holiness and his character and his otherness. And also recognize that he comes to us in grace and mercy, which is sublime. It's something that we can't quite comprehend or get our arms around. It's not just something that we confess to theologically. It's something that we experience. Dr. Horton writes about this in his new book. It says, Recovering Our Sanity, How the Fear of God Conquers the Fears That Divide Us. He says, in essence, that it's the fear of God that drives out the fear of everything else that we have. A healthy fear of God drives out all other fears. Our fears of others, our fears of what they might do to us, our fear of not having enough money, our fear of power, our fear of death, our fear of sin, our fear of Satan. All of those things are driven out by something and someone much greater whom we ought to stand in holy fear of. And he comes to us, that one, who has every right to crush us and snuff us out. He comes to us in mercy and he hangs on a cross to endure the condemnation for us. Dr. Horton says there's a sublimeness to that. Like when you see a storm that you can't quite comprehend the power of it and you find it's beautiful and terrifying and yet also enjoyable in some sense. It's that way in the cross. It's that way with God. It's not just something that we say we're to fear the Lord, but that we experience when we recognize that we deserve to be on the cross, but he came in our stead. It's that, that the text that we're talking about. And so criminal two, after he rebuked criminal one, he now turns to Jesus. In verse 42, he says, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus. This is the only time that someone calls Jesus by his name while he's on the cross. It's personal. It's poignant. It's powerful. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is really a request for mercy. One theologian said, in some sense, the criminal knows and anticipates that Jesus will have great power and a kingdom in the future. Jesus is demonstrating that power and bringing that kingdom right then through his suffering and through his obedience. This criminal really has both a plea and a profession of faith. He recognizes that he's a sinner, that he's guilty. He's confessed his sin. I deserve this condemnation. I deserve death. He recognizes the Savior. He calls out to him by his name, Jesus, which means Savior. He's calling out in hope. He's calling out in faith. And he actually bears witness. (laughs) He's one of the first evangelists. He bears witness to another person about the work of Jesus. Philip Ryken said he is the most unusual and unexpected evangelist. Because on the cross, criminal two is saying to criminal one, he's the savior, we deserve this, he's the savior. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. One theologian said, some people saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead 
and refuse to believe that he's the Christ. Imagine standing and seeing Jesus call to someone who had been dead for days and say, Lazarus, come forth, and he does. And then not have a holy fear that he is God. Some people saw that and didn't believe. This man is watching him die and believes. That's remarkable. That's the gift of God's grace and faith in him to be able to see, to be able to recognize the Savior, to be able to recognize his sin and to call out. And then Jesus speaks to the criminal. Criminal 2 in verse 43. He says, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Hywell Jones said, I am convinced, but I could be wrong. And Hywell Jones is not wrong. (laughs) He said that when Jesus heard his name uttered, his head turned and their eyes met. We don't know that from the text, but can you imagine? You're in your, you're basically being asphyxiated on a cross. You've been beaten, you've been mocked, you've been hanging there for hours, head down. You hear your name for the first time, Jesus. And did their heads turn and their eyes meet? The first time that someone had called his name. He's bleeding, he's dying. This is the second person of the Holy Trinity. Abandoned, beaten, mocked, lonely, crushed, betrayed, and he hears his name, Jesus. It's immediate. It's instantaneous. It's personal. It's a glorious response. And he says to him, truly I say to you, that's an oath, on my life, (laughs) which he's giving up right then for him, On my life, I promise you, I say to you. And in the Greek, you can be used as like a singular or a plural. They were anticipating the great state of Texas where you say all y'all. But he doesn't say, truly I say to all y'all. He says, truly I say to you. To you. This is personal. Jesus died for his sheep. Jesus died for his people. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And note that today is not some distant future, unknown future. It's now. That night. This is more than he had asked for. God gives more grace. We could get into all kinds of theological implications of this, beloved, but there's no purgatory. There's no waiting room. There's no evaluation of his works. He was dying. He cried out for mercy. And Jesus said, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Think about the reality of being with me. an abiding presence 
with the one who is just feet from him right now, paying the penalty for his sin, having lived a life of perfect obedience on his behalf, the one who created the universe, the one who is going to prepare a place for all of us, the one who is holy, the one who is righteous, the one who is loving beyond compare. Hywa Jones says, this isn't just a reply, but a revelation. Today, you will be with me in paradise. With me. Your friend, your savior. We'll be together in love. We'll be together in fellowship. We'll be together in friendship. We'll be together in forgiveness and righteousness forever and ever and ever. Today. Jesus is saying this on a cross. This wasn't at a local tavern talking about theology or what might happen over an ale. This is Jesus hanging on a cross where at that very moment the power of sin, the power of hell, and the power of death are being conquered. He's saying today from the cross where the curse of law breaking is being meted out on him. Jesus Christ is paying the penalty for all of our failure to love, all of our failure to obey, all of our failure to do that which we know pleases God to do that which we know is helpful for our neighbor. In thought, word, and deed, anything that we've done or left undone that uh, is not according to the word of God, Jesus right then is paying the penalty for our law-breaking. And Jesus is also saying this from the cross where he is offering perfect obedience from a whole life lived of constantly doing the will of the Father where Adam and Eve had said, not thy will, but mine be done. Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. Perpetually, delightfully, joyously, wholeheartedly, over and over. Here's the innocent one dying for the guilty, dying for us. Beloved, how much do you need to know to be saved? Not a whole lot. This man didn't have much time to be faithful, did he? (laughs) He didn't have time to join a church. He didn't have time to walk in discipleship. Certainly if he would have lived, he would have been part of the church and done those things. But he knew that he was a sinner and he knew who the Savior was. This is a dying man's prayer. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, Savior, save me. In other words, what do you need to know? Your sin and your Savior. It's not even a what so much as a who. Who do you need to know? This one. Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, now in the flesh, hanging on a tree, a cursed death for you and for me. Despite the mocking taunts, Jesus did save this man. (laughs) If you're the Christ, save yourself and save others, he did. And beloved, Jesus saves any and everyone who calls upon his name. Our call to worship, come to me, all of you, 
who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I demand a response. It's the turning point of redemptive history. It's the turning point of history. Neutrality is a myth. We're either shaking our fists saying we will not have this man rule over us or we're coming in faith and saying, Jesus, save me, and he does. And the decision couldn't be more weighty. Judgment and paradise hang in the balance. Criminal one and criminal two. Condemnation and peace hang in the balance. Are you mocking? Are you scoffing? Are you blaspheming? Are you shrugging? Are you ignoring? Are you hoping that it will all go away? Or are you believing and resting and trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? The criminal knew when he was going to die in just a few moments, but we don't. And so, beloved, today is our day of salvation. If you hear his voice, don't turn away. Come. And everyone who comes will be saved. Before we close, I was thinking as we were singing, if you'll turn in your hymnals. It didn't dawn on me quite how much this hymn went with the sermon until this afternoon and then as we were singing it. Just listen to the lyrics again to Psalm 69b in light of this story. Imagine this on the lips of Criminal 2, Psalm 69b, in the hymnal. Thy loving kindness, Lord, is good and free. In tender mercy, turn unto me. Hide not thy face from me in my distress. In mercy, hear my prayer. Thy servant bless. Needy and sorrowful to thee I cry. Let thy salvation set my soul on high. Then I will sing and praise thy holy name. My thankful song thy mercy shall proclaim. With joy the meek shall see my soul restored. Your heart shall live, ye saints that seek the Lord. He helps the needy and regards their cries. Those in distress the Lord will not despise. Let heaven above his grace and glory tell. Let earth and sea and all that in them dwell. Salvation to his people God will give. And they that love his name with him shall live. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for the great links that you went to reconcile us poor and miserable sinners to you by sending your own son, Jesus Christ, to endure a shameful public execution, enduring your wrath, enduring the condemnation that should have been poured out on us so that we could have life and have it abundantly. We deserve death and we were giving an inheritance unimaginable. We were enemies and we were made heirs. We were unrighteous and we were made righteous. 
We were dead in our trespasses and sins and you made us alive together in Christ. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself so fully and so clearly through your word and through your son. We thank you that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and to call out on the name of Jesus. We pray that it would strengthen our resolve and strengthen our confidence to be able to come before you that you've provided everything that we need in him. And Father, for any here tonight who don't know you and for our friends and family who don't know you, we ask that you be merciful to them. We ask that you would turn them, that you would take away their hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh through your spirit, renewing them and causing them to recognize their sin and their Savior Jesus as well. It is in his name, washed in his blood and clothed in his robe of righteousness that we pray. And all God's children said, Amen.